Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Thank you, Jim, for that nice bit of advice. Hello, welcome. This is David Eastall and this is the C86 Show. As you know, I always like a special guest. This week, it is going to be the turn of the American rock band Fanny because I spoke to the drummer Alistair Berg very recently, well, a few months ago, to find out more about love, life, poetry and also the world that is rock and roll. So I've got that interview that I'm going to play. But before we have the quality chat... I think we should play some music to get the party rolling. This is going to be your favourite and mine. This is Charity Ball. And the crowd went wild. That was Fanny, and that was the track titled Charity Ball. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Uh, before the interview, I always like to do a little bit of admin. Um, yes, if you want to contact me, we love your messages. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86 show. I will be there. Obviously, keep it nice and positive. Otherwise, don't bother, really. And also, I've been doing this show for several years, probably three plus years. So each week I have a special guest. So that's a huge back catalogue. So you can find those on uh, Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, Podbean. Just go to um, C86 show. It's all there. But anyway, this week, special guest is Alistair Burr, Burr um, the drummer and vocalist with Fanny, the American rock band from the 70s. And as David Bowie once said, 
They were extraordinary. They wrote everything. They played like mother duckers. They were just colossal and wonderful, and nobody's ever mentioned them. Well, David, they have now. This is the interview, and this is the first part, and only part, really, because I'm just going to play the whole thing. Um, when I asked Alice about the background to the band, and this was her reply. Alice, take it away. June and Jean had a band based in Sacramento, California, called The Svelts, S-V-E-L-T-S, which I always thought was kind of a weird name, but okay. Um, Addie had a band called The California Girls, and I had a band in Iowa, which is where I was raised, um, called The Women. And I left home when I was 17, and headed out to find my fame and fortune. And uh, I ended up in Sacramento. Um, Addie was our... Oh, wait a minute, you've just, you've got to Sacramento. Right. And then, oh, is it possible? Actually, you got to Sacramento and then it kind of cut. Do you want to just hit the, the visual? Because I think this might kind of affect the quality. Oh, the network is... Ow. Oh, are you still there? I'm still here. Yeah, you got the Sacramento. Oh, that's better. Yeah, so could you just go to Sacramento again? Oh. Yeah, um, I, oh, I'm not sure which Sacramento time that I, it, and if I drop out again, interrupt me. Yeah, I will. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, um, June and Jean and Addie were already playing together. Addie Lee, Addie Clement was her name at the time. And um, I went to a music store and found a little card saying looking for a female drummer. And I called the number and June and Jean's little sister took the message, um, didn't give it to June and Jean. They went off to Canada. And I think they went through five drummers or three drummers, something like that. Anyway, when they came back to Sacramento, um, they got the message and they called me. And I went down to a building in downtown to, uh, Sacramento where they were rehearsing and I auditioned. And we did um, Give Me Some Lovin'. And I did most of that on the toms, which they weren't expecting, I guess, because Addie kind of fell off her stool, and that was it. I was in the band. So we toured uh, mostly fraternity parties and uh, bars. We played Fort Ord um, at Stillwell Hall, which was this, it was the last stop before RGIs went to Vietnam, and we would play in front of like two or 3,000 GIs and we were still playing uh, mostly Motown yeah. back at, at that time, which was, I loved, was great. June was on rhythm guitar, Addie played lead guitar, Gene played bass, I was drums, and occasionally we had a keyboard player who didn't, uh, wasn't consistent with the band, but uh, did some gigs. Um, and after a few years or a few months of that, Addie and I quit and we started the band Wild Honey. 
and June and Jean continued on with the Svelts. Um, a few months later, we realized that while hunting wasn't going to cut it, they realized that they were not making it. So we buried the hatchets, got back together as wild honey. Um, in 1969, I think it was May of 1969, we went to L.A. And we had decided that we were either going to make it, get a record contract, or we were going to go to school. We were going to give it. And um, there was uh, Richard Perry's secretary was at the Troubadour on Hoot Night. And Hoot Night at the Troubadour was uh, you signed up and... Uh, you got to play a few songs, and there were a lot of industry people there usually. And <clears throat> Richard's secretary said, Richard, you've got to see these girls. So Richard um, contacted us, and we did an audition for him in one of the small Wally Hyder um, overdub studios. It was just a really small room, probably the size of my office, which is not that big like 10 feet by 20 feet, maybe. Um, my drums were wall to wall. I remember that. Mm. And we did a couple songs and he took, he, he, he said he had 15 minutes for us. He spent uh, two hours at least, two plus, and went back to Reprise to Mo Austin and said, I want to sign these girls. And we did. And that was the start of it. Fantastic. And did you, I mean, having interviewed a lot of bands, they often take a few years to get a sound together, which is a little bit more unusual than just the bog standard pub rock, you know, kind of blues rock stuff. So did, did you sort of find that you, you sort of clicked quite quickly or did it sort of have to take a certain amount of, you know, kind of time to elapse before or clips before things started to sort of come together to make something quite, quite sort of standout-ish? Well, um, we fired, we had a female manager and we realized that we were going to need somebody who had more connections in the industry and more skill, if you will. And, uh, so we fired our, our manager and Addie quit. So the three of us and Richard started recording the first album. Uh, when we found Nikki, we re-recorded half of that first album because her songs were so great. But I don't think that we really found our sound until um, after that first album, uh, Charity Ball uh, was better. And Fanny Hill, I think by Fanny Hill, we really knew who we were. I think that if you look at the 1971 Beat Club footage, we're pretty tight. Yeah, yeah, we uh, we meshed very well together. Fantastic. Uh, Yeah, so that I think it took us about a year. Yes. 18 months, maybe? Well, it's interesting because I'm sort of obsessed with watching rock documentaries, being a bit of a fanboy, and sort of realise that most bands from sort of, whether it's the Beatles, whether it's the Stones, you know, David Bowie, you know, they did have a few years, and David Bowie had an awful long time, before he managed to sort of hit something that was kind of 
vaguely interesting. You know, he just kind of played some sort of weird folk stuff and rock stuff, but nothing unusual. So it did take a long time. And the game with the Beatles, they had to go to Hamburg and they played an awful lot of gigs. And then, you know, eventually things started to sort of sound a bit more interesting and, and unique. So that's why I was wondering how quickly it sort of, you know, became something that you thought, yeah, this is quite... Uh, kind of special because obviously you know the first albums often it can sometimes be like the Sex Pistols an absolute masterpiece and you think well you should just give up now which they did or it's like well that's a good first try but let's go back for the second get a better producer and then off you go so I just wondered what that you know that that process was probably quite similar to you because playing live is often something that a lot of bands really need to sort of hone their skills well once we found Nikki um things meshed pretty quickly because she was so extraordinary. Um, we, June was, was having to teach, June had to teach herself how to play lead guitar um, after Addie quit. And uh, she was so diligent and so focused. I mean, you know, sitting there with the record, playing a little bit of a song, lifting the needle, playing the lead, Put the needle back on. I mean, she did that for hours. But um, if we were not recording, we were rehearsing. And if we weren't rehearsing or recording, we were on the road. We rehearsed seven days a week from 10 o'clock in the morning until 7, 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. Um, I mean, it was, it was solid uh, work. Of mm. course, we were enjoying it, you know, because it was... We were playing music. But I look at the first album, and um, there are some songs on here that I just really don't like at all that sound to me. Um, this, this is my least favorite album. Uh, but I love Badge. I love the version of Badge that we did. Um, there are some good songs on here, but I think that Charity Ball, Fanny Hill, and Mother's Pride were far better uh, musically, musicianship-wise. Um, you know, I think we progressed. Yes. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. I have. I do regret that I quit. That's the one regret I have. Um, I didn't really want to be in a band without June because I really liked the way June played. Um, and I don't know. I would not have been able to, to enjoy the rock opera that uh, Patty and Jean and Nikki uh, and Brie put out with Rock and Roll Survivors. Um, I just liked real simple rock and roll. You know? yes. I didn't want to do heavy metal, little, you know, Arabian Night lead guitar. I wanted songs that had melodies, songs that had uh, beginning, vo uh, verse, verse, bridge, verse, you know, uh, and I think I got that with Fanny. The, the, the thing with Fanny that, that was such a joy for me was um, creating the drum part, the original drum part, coming up with, um, with each song, trying to make the drums fit in, but also be the, the bass, the foundation of the band. Um, that was the joy to me, was, was creating the, uh, the drum part for the song. 
Yes, because you did have a very prolific... I mean, a lot of bands do have this very prolific period, which I've almost got it to a five-year lifespan, and this is kind of to do with the UK, like having two years getting together, sort of forming a sound, and then there was this DJ in the UK called John Peel who played alternative stuff and new stuff, so he was very good at sort of... You know, if anything was interesting, John Peel would play it, and then bands would then get a sort of John Peel session where they could record three or four, and then that would give them that first album and a tour, and then the second album. And in the UK, I sort of found that if any band ever sort of toured the U- U- USA, that seemed to be the thing that finished them off, because they'd often come back and say, and then we split up. So obviously, within your period, you know, that period of those first three albums, you were just obviously playing 24-7 and living with, with, um, with, in each other's pockets, probably. Yeah, pretty much. And it's, um, I know, I've always thought this, but but not being a guy, I don't know. I know that a lot of guys, if they get upset with each other, they have a little pushing, shoving thing, and then they get over it. But with women, it seems to me that women hold grudges. Um, We're not physical. Um, So venting that frustration of, June and, June and Nikki were at opposite ends of the spectrum and trying to keep them in a place where that we could all work together. Jean and I spent a lot of time mediating between the two of them. I always wished that they had been able to put aside the differences and write songs together because I think that June's um, soft ballady kind of side and Nikki's hard rocker side could have written some really great songs together. Yes. <laughs> but it reminds me a few years later when Hart came along and there was the sort of Wilson sisters and they complemented each other brilliantly. But obviously yeah. by your third album, you'd, um, you had the great experience of being able to come over to the UK to record um, in... Um, oh, God, I can't remember what the studio was now. The, 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 the Beatles one, which was Abbey Road Studios. So that no, must... Not Abbey Road. We recorded at Apple. Apple, right. Yeah, yeah. We did not record at Abbey Road. Okay. I did a summer song we did at Trident. Was Trident at studio? Might have been, yes. Um, we recorded all of Fanny Hill except for summer song at Apple. Okay, then, yes. Yeah, that... and the thing, coming to the UK, David, um, we felt such validation because... The Brits opened their arms to us. They responded and treated us like we really mattered, which was hard to come by in the United States. It's so big, and there's so much distance between. You can have, we had a number, Charity Ball was number one in Chicago on the rock station in Chicago. But you get away from that, those airwaves, and Washington State had never heard of us. And in England, it was so small and so compact that word spread and people treated us really, really well. It was love the UK. Yeah, well, excellent, because actually, because I sort of, I noticed there that um, it was produced or I think engineered by by one of the Beatles kind of associates, um, Jeff Emmerich. So that... He was amazing. Amazing. 
And yeah. not, not only that, you also had a couple of the, the Ronan Stone sidemen, you know, Bobby Keys and Jim Price, who played on a couple of the tracks. So that must have felt kind of like quite a, a sort of an enjoyable experience. And if that wasn't enough, you know, the photograph of the cover was taken by our one and only David Bailey. So you, you yeah. sort of must have felt kind of like you were surfing a cultural zeitgeist here. Yeah, we, we felt like rock stars in, in Britain. You guys made us feel like we really mattered. Yes, because I so. know, because one of the, I suppose, you know, one of my you know, obsessions and my first love was David Bowie, and obviously he was a really big fan of the band, and it, it's like, I use David Bowie as one of those people that he would say, oh, by the way, oh, you, oh you're frozen again. Wait a minute, I'm just talking, so I'll be able to edit this out. Reconnecting, there's a ball network. Wait a minute. It might be back. Or not. Oh, yes, we're nearly back. Yeah, so Dave, so yes, I was just saying that um, one of my big influences in life was David Bowie. So whenever he, meant, right. he mentioned an artist or film or book or anything, I always took kind of an interest and would track it down. And obviously, he was a big fan of the band who, who sort of mentioned right. some nice things about you. So... That must have felt, um, I'm sure at the time you probably didn't really care, but I realised that it, it's kind of ob oh. obviously being quoted a lot. Oh, oh yeah, the, the quote from the uh, turn of the century Rolling Stone issue is was a big deal. But David sent us his albums. Um, I think it was after the first album came out, or, or maybe Charity Ball, because I know that the first album wasn't released in England. Um, and he sent us his albums with a little note saying, I really love your music. Here's some of mine. And it was just a wonderful exchange. But when we got to Liverpool, and I'm, I don't know if this was our first tour, probably. We did two or three tours, in, three tours in England. And he had played Liverpool the night before. And we got to the hotel late. The kitchen was closed. David got them to open the kitchen and provide us with something to eat. And while we were eating, he did this impromptu mime thing and was just a lovely, lovely man. And June and Jean went off and spent most of the night with him, probably talking and, and sharing. And, you know, it was he was really a nice, nice man. Yes, excellent. So that was obviously your third album was one of your highlights. So by the time you got to the fourth album, which was, this is the one produced by Todd Rundgren, and this was Mother's Pride. How was, how was the atmosphere within the band then? Um, June and Nikki were farther and farther apart. Uh, uh, I, June had some real emotional stuff going on that was not apparent to me at the time. And one of the reasons that we switched producers was because, number one, we were tired of the overly produced sound that Richard gave us, and we also wanted to be a part of the mix. And Todd said that he would let us help mix it. <clears throat> well, when the album was finished, he locked the door and said, if you change a thing, take my name off of it. No, you're not going to help me mix it. So it was really, he was such a jackass about it. But, I mean, we just wanted, we were at a point where... Um, we knew more. We knew um, a sound that we wanted to get. We we had never been captured. Our live sound was always so much better than anything that was recorded. 
Um, and I wish that we had, had been able to have some input. Uh, I have a, a, the admin of, my, of the FannyRocks.com site, Byron, had this idea. He said, Alice, what is it going to cost you to buy your master's back from Warner? And I said, a lot of money. They think, or they've put $275,000 back on the books after they, I'm sure, claimed it as a loss back in the 70s. Um, he said, you should do a Kickstarter campaign. Find out how much it's going to cost you to get your masters back and then remix them. And I thought, oh, that's really a lot of work. I don't know <laughs> if I can do that. <laughs> but yes. it's a dream. Yes, I mean, that's a nice idea. So did you have a particular moment when you decided to leave the band? I mean, was that something that you knew was coming or was it kind of a quite a, a spontaneous moment? Well, we had had a couple of rehearsals with Patty Quattro and June had picked Patty to replace her. And... Um, my, my girlfriend at the time, I, I came home from one tour and she just said, it's either me or the band. And unfortunately, I thought that she was more important than the band and so I quit. That's why I quit. Yes. Now that and not wanting to be in a band without June, I mean, it just seemed like the time to say enough, you know. And I wish I'd been stronger and said, well, there's the door, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's difficult. I mean, you know, when you're young and there's so much going on and everything is probably so magnified emotionally, it's kind of hard to, to appreciate it in, in sort of any sort of, with any wisdom or hindsight. And I, I suppose what's really amazed me is with any bands, surviving that five years is quite extraordinary. And, and some bands seem to be able to do it, I mean, like 5%, and the other 95 just go... I'm just going to get a job or I'm just going to do something else. So I, I, I'm, I'm impressed, you know, even though it's easy to knock bands like U2 or the Rolling Stones or anybody, but you think, my God, not only do you have to get on with each other, you've had to navigate the and admin, the publishing, you know, the dynamicness amongst yourselves, things are changing, all the people's partners, yeah. all that kind of stuff. You just think, how the hell do you survive that, you know? The politics of the microcosm, which is a rock and roll band, I think would make a very interesting uh, sociological study, you know, because it is politics. I mean, you just, you know, I'm not a side musician. I was one quarter of the band. Nikki wasn't a side musician. Gene, June, I mean, we were all part of that band. And the politics of maneuvering with pretty much 24-7 contact. Um, that's, it's difficult. It, it's definitely difficult. Yes, it's very difficult. And obviously, you know, one thing that one, you know, as a fan, you, you sort of wonder how the members get on and or, or, or sort of what happens next. And, and they, even though you don't often want them, not always want them to reform, you hope that there's some sort of relationship between them eventually where they can kind of ex at least exchange the odd Christmas card or birthday card and then one day say, probably after two decades, oh, can we just go and have a cup of tea and just just have a nice time and reminisce a bit about the band. Did you, how did the dynamic amongst the band continue the, you know, the following decades? Um, well, 
when I quit, they put out Rock and Roll Survivors and toured. Um, and I don't know why Nikki left or why that band broke up because I wasn't part of it. But I know that Nikki did put out a solo album, which was always her goal, her dream. Um, she didn't want to be in Fanny. She didn't want to be in an all-girl band. And her husband, Jim Seagrave, um, said, Nikki, this is a way for you to get your songs heard. You should really do this for a while. Get your name out there. Get your songs out there. And um, once Nikki left, she settled in Britain. I think she then was in Ireland. I know that she had some bands in England, in London. Um, I've had people tell me that they saw her band in London. Um, and then she disappeared for until 2002. I didn't know where Nikki was. Um, and Byron, the administrator of the FannyRocks.com site, my buddy, he had been in touch with her. Um, she would comment on, he had a, a, a Fanny site and she would make comments. And then he was a, he's a cartoonist, online cartoonist. And he still is in touch with her. I talked to Nikki in 2002 um, when the uh, Rhino handmade box set was being made because I really wanted her to be represented. Mm. And we talked for about half an hour, and she really just didn't have any interest in Fanny. She really didn't want to. I said, we know we each have X amount of space on the box for thank yous, and I'll give you half of mine, because currently they just have three spaces. And she, she did write some kind of a little thank you, but um, she just doesn't want to be bothered. It was uh, a painful experience for her. Um, June didn't talk about Fanny, would not talk about Fanny for years. Um, it's only been in the last 10 or 15 years, 20 years maybe, that June has realized that Fanny actually did something and she could use that Fanny connection um, to... Uh, help her with the Institute for the Musical Arts that she has in Massachusetts. Um, Jean is the only one who was on all five albums. And Jean went into uh, metaphysical body work. Um, a year ago, two years ago, June, Jean, and Brie, who was the drummer before me and the drummer after me um, in the band, they put out a record uh, calling themselves Fanny Walked the Earth. And there are some really, really great songs on that CD. It came out March last year. Um, really some wonderful songs. I would love to have seen that band um, tour. Uh, I did. I went in and did an overdub on one of the tracks. Bree and I became have become friends, and um, she asked me to put some drums on one of the songs and everything was going fine until Jean had a stroke January last year and is still 
recovering. She's not able to. She, she can walk. You know, she's she's still recovering. Crikey, that, um, yes, that is yeah, quite serious. You know, she'll have, I don't know that she'll ever play bass again, no. which is a shame. It's a shame. And your life, because you kept in the music world as well. So you, you know, you obviously, because there was that famous Hunter S. Thompson track about sort of, you know, rock and roll being sort of pretty sleazy and all that kind of stuff. I'll have to sort of dig it out to quote it. But, but you actually sort of, you, you sort of navigated it and sort of went into make it your career. I did. I did. Um, I, I realized I had been very spoiled and all I had to do was walk out on stage and sit down. My drums were set up. I got up after the set and walked away and my drums got packed away in the next town and they were set up. Having a roadie is quite a luxury for a drummer. And I got, um, I did play on one album after I quit. It was a band called the Peter Peter Ivers Band. And Peter Ivers was this really avant-garde, uh, he was out there. We did play one performance at the Palladium in, in Los Angeles, and he performed in diapers. Um, just very weird. But <laughs> after that, I realized I needed something to pay my bills, so I started working in the record industry uh, for an independent record, record distributor basically managing inventory for Mercury Phillips Records. Eventually parlayed that into a job at A&M Records, and I was at A&M until uh, 84, when I thought the future was video. Yes. Well, I was mistaken. You know, you don't, you don't uh, develop artists in video like you did in music. I mean, we had... A&M had 12 or 13 Joan Armour trading albums because Jerry Moss loved her so much. The, the promotion department didn't, department did not know what to do with her, but I mean, I loved and still do love Joan Armour trading. And it was my job to make sure that the record stores in Southern California, from Santa Barbara south to San Diego, that they played our, our releases that... I would do in-stores. I did the Go-Go's first in-store that they ever did. And they were getting a little rowdy and wanting to leave. And I said, you're going to stay here until every single autograph is signed. <laughs> I said, I'll go get beer. Just sit down. And they did. And it was, uh, it, it was, they were fun. They were a lot of fun. But I had tickets to the concerts. I had the tickets to the ball games to give to the buyers at the record stores. And that was kind of my retail promotion. Excellent. <laughs> God, the world of rock and roll. So are you still there doing that, or have you managed to sort of, uh, I don't know, retire, or is it still something that you're involved with? I'm not involved with the music business. Um, once I quit A&M, I started working in the video business, and I've been doing video sales since... 1986 yeah 86 right. uh, yeah and the last company that I worked for um, is a small independent distributor MTI home video out of Miami and I am currently a um, as of January much more semi-retired if you will um, I do independent contracting consultation for them but for the most part I'm 
pretty much done. <laughs> Just lots of filing and lots of memories. Because the interesting thing that I've noticed, and the, and you probably, I don't know if you noticed this, but often, you know, because I, I, I was sort of, was very obsessed with the 80s. You know, I was, um, that was probably the decade that I became very keen on. And then, you know, when that musical kind of moment came and went during the, you know, it's the indie, I suppose you call it indie pop, indie rock or whatever. You know, it all gets put into a cupboard and everybody forgets about it. And then about 30 years later, people start sort of pulling, opening the cupboard door going, you know, this stuff that we kind of took for granted, it was really good. So suddenly record companies have started going, oh, we might compile some compilations or, you know, perhaps we should put a nice little box set of that band together. But I noticed 30 years is a kind of a period of time that seems to give things that could have been chucked into the recycling or landfill suddenly become sort of hist- history, heritage, and it needs to be archived. And it's the same with these musical fanzines. You know, suddenly they've become really valuable and people have started writing serious academic books on fanzines <coughs> of the 80s. So did you find with the band a similar kind of story that you suddenly people started knocking on your door going you know that was amazing you thought oh right I thought everyone had forgot about it well David how did you find me <laughs> you know um I I have been trying for the last 10 15 years um to get the rights to the beat club footage um legally to put up on the fannyrocks.com site which is the place where people can go and they can buy our music, they can uh, read the backstory and whatever. Anyway, <clears throat> early February, the Beat Club released that 35-minute, 36-minute segment from our first uh, taping um, on YouTube. And I started getting emails and Facebook requests and people are buying the CD. How come I've never heard of these people and this band, they're great, blah, blah, blah. And it's been absolutely a thrill. And if you realize that we're almost to May of 2019 and it was May of 1969, 50 years later, it's a little outside your 30-year equation. But if you look at 47, 48, 49, 50 years ago, um, and to be validated, even at this point, it's a thrill. I am having such fun. I am, I'm sending CDs all over the world. I've, I had never shipped anything to Switzerland, uh, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Germany, Japan, Australia, Spain, Austria, France, UK. I mean, it's just been a hoot. And I'm trying to respond to people on Facebook more than I used to. I didn't feel like I wasn't very comfortable um, commenting back when people would say, I love this band and liking that statement and then writing a little comment. But I've been doing it lately and um, have made connection with a lot of the fans that are some new, some old. But... um, it doesn't matter to me that it that they're just finding out about us. The fact that they have found out about us is very gratifying. 
yes, a whole new generation who's taken the baton and um, and now it's survived that period of time. It will always be there, you know, basically. And it's quite interesting because when you said 69, obviously in my brain, 69, because there's suddenly a lot of interest, is Woodstock as well. So it's, it's kind of, it's nice of the way it's sort of all come together like that as well. What would you say to your 18-year-old self? Um... Who was, start, who, was, who was starting out in music or the comment that you thought, oh, that would have been such a good thing to have known when we, when we first started? Just enjoy the ride. Um, I probably would have stuck it out longer. Um, although, if you look at women in rock today, um, there are not very many. And the same rules apply. It's a male-dominated industry which is a shame because I think there are some fantastic female musicians out there. Um, I would just say enjoy the ride and stick it out as long as you can. Yes. I wouldn't have done too much differently. No, which is good. And I know this is probably the most boring question, but <laughs> because but you know, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? No. Oh, okay, that's good. Um, the name of the band is often... Ah. Made- it was, I was right. <laughs> David, we had no idea what Fanny meant in England until we got there. Right. Because Fanny was a, is a woman's name. Yeah, it's, it's Fanny is just a woman's name in the United States. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with the body, the anatomy. Um, and obviously... Uh, Brits thought otherwise, and maybe that might have gained us some fans, and it also might have restricted some fans thinking that we were a gimmick, just, you know, playing with the name, but that's not, um, that's not what we did. It was legitimately Fanny, woman. Yes. We were all women. We liked it, so we used it. And, um, you can't argue with that, really, can you? And that, sadly, is the last part of my interview with Alice Burke from the rock band Fanny. Thank you ever so much. And um, just to say, there were a few, just a few, connection problems we had during that interview, which um, meant that occasionally the line would completely drop and in one case completely disconnected. So hopefully there weren't too many of those kind of rather obvious poor editing moments by me anyway sad to say that is the end of the show thank you ever so much for listening if you still are you should be um this has been david eastall the c86 show like i said you can contact me on facebook twitter instagram just go to at c86 show i will be there keep it positive you know what i'm going to say just don't bother otherwise and uh, all the shows have been archived so you can find those on spotify itunes Podbean, Mixcloud. Anyway, I'll leave you with another track from Fanny. This is um, their classic, which um, we all loved back in the day. Well, I wasn't really that old at the time. But this is Ain't That Peculiar. Have a great week.